And now, mind, body, health, and politics. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our show today will explore the controversial prison sentence recently given by Mendocino County Judge Ron Brown to Aaron Vargas, and what questions that sentence raises about both the mental health system and the legal system. As our first program on this topic discussed, Aaron Vargas was due to be sentenced on June 15th after pleading guilty to killing Daryl McNeil, a neighbor, Boy Scout leader, and businessman who allegedly sexually and psychologically molested Vargas and possibly other boys for many years. In a case where many of the local community, including members of the homicide victim's family, called for Aaron Vargas to receive probation, and in a case which attracted the attention of local, state, and national media, the sentencing hearing was the subject of anxious anticipation. We now have that sentence, nine years in state prison, and we have expert guests here today to explore what this case can teach us about our mental health and criminal justice system. We will look at the extent to which law enforcement, probation departments, and judges have the willingness and the ability to understand the effects of long-term sexual and psychological abuse. On our program today will be Assistant District Attorney Elizabeth Beth Norman, who is the prosecutor in the Vargas case, hopefully Tom Hudson, Aaron's defense attorney. Also with us for sure is Dr. David Wolf, a psychologist and author specialing in abuse and trauma cases affecting children and youth. He holds a distinguished chair in children's mental health and is head of the Center for Prevention Science located in London, Ontario. He's a professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Toronto and editor-in-chief of Child Abuse and Neglect, the International Journal. We are also privileged to have with us Gerald Schwartzbach, a nationally respected criminal law attorney with over 40 years of courtroom experience. Many of you will recognize Jerry's name as the lawyer who successfully defended the actor Robert Blake in his murder trial. Also, representing the Vargas family, we have Mindy Galliani, Aaron's Vargas's sister. In 2008, the United States government passed what is referred to as the Mental Health Parity Act. That act says, in effect, that mental illness is on a par, on a level playing field with physical illness. But what does that actually mean to all of us? I mean, we, we start to understand how serious cancer is. And some of us do, and of course the medical profession is studying it. But how much do we know about mental illness, which is now on a level playing field with physical illness? What do we know about such things as what's called diminished capacity. 30 years before the 2008 Mental Health Parity Act, we had a famous case in San Francisco whereby 
a man named Dan White shot and killed the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone. He then went down the hall, changed magazines in his pistol, and shot and killed another supervisor, Dan White. Uh, excuse me, Harvey Milk. Dan White shot Harvey Milk. Dan White, for those two murders, received seven years and eight months as his sentence. We have a situation here where Aaron Vargas shot and killed Daryl McNeil. He received nine years. Let's start with you, Assistant District Attorney Beth Norman. What is your response? How do you, what, is, what are your thoughts about the sentence that Aaron Vargas received and in, particularly in light of the sentence that Dan White received? Right. Um, the Dan White case, well, the law has changed since then. And I'm speaking generalities here, but uh, part of the sentence here was not just on the manslaughter charge, but also on the weapons use charge. Um, and so I believe when Dan White was sentenced, he was probably just sentenced for manslaughter. I'm not sure that they enhanced it for, for the gun use like they have since then. Um, they, they've passed additional laws. So when the judge was sentencing here, it was not only the, the term of three years or six years for the manslaughter, but also the term for the gun use. Um, it, it's hard to compare cases because they, you know, I don't think the judge sat there and thought about Dan White versus Aaron Vargas. But what the judge did do in this case was look at uh, a lot of information and listen to a lot of testimony. And he also reflected on a lot of the um, agreements we had already made in the case. I mean, we had already taken first-degree murder off the table. We had already taken second-degree murder off the table. We had, we were talking, we had removed the aggravated term on the manslaughter. So we were talking either the standard middle term on manslaughter or a lower term. And so when the judge looked at all that, he, he talked a lot in his final conclusions about looking at the crime itself. And, and a lot of people had talked about Aaron Vargas as a person, but the judge really talked about the fact that the criminal justice system needs to clearly say that you cannot go out and shoot somebody and kill them um, because of past life issues with them. There is, there is a system in place, and he talked about the criminal justice system and the importance of it as, as the remedy for people to, to turn to, and that the justice system couldn't condone what he did by simply not having any punishment at all. Now, you use the term past life issues. Based on the evidence you heard and that was presented, do you believe that Aaron Vargas was, in fact, molested by Daryl McNeil from the time he was 11 years old and on? I do. Well, I, I don't know when it started, um, as far as clarification on that. And um, 11 years old is the number that is used generally, and so I'll go with that. But I do believe that. And when you were talking earlier, you were using the legal term, you know, allegedly molested. And I always, as a prosecutor, have a hard time with that because it's so hard for victims to come forward and talk about their molest that it's almost insulting to keep using the word allegedly. So at this point in time, I, I believe that, you know, Aaron has come forward and talked about his molest. He finally did that at this sentencing hearing and in his letters to the judge. Um, and so many other men did, too. And so I, I do believe it happened to them. Um, Some of these other men did come forward, such as Todd Rowan, I believe, is on, on record as uh, saying that Daryl McNeil molested him. Is that correct? Yes. And he also 
testified about that at, at the actual hearing. Todd Rowan did, and um, trying to go through my notes. Well, here, there was, was a, a niece of Daryl McNeil who also said that uh, that she was molested from the time she was three years old. I'm reading from the probation report here. Uh, Dr. David Wolf, let me ask you this. Could you please talk to us about the effects of molestation on youth? I'd be happy to. Um, the effects have been uh, largely studied in women until more recently, uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, until really the early 2000s. Um, it was almost entirely female population. The effects typically are mood disorders, depression and such um, in women, um, and anxiety and, and things like this. When we started to look at men, there is a different pattern. Much like other forms of stress, men respond more violently um, to situations or more self-abusively, such as alcohol and drug abuse. Uh, I assessed 100 men who were abused uh, in an orphanage in Canada, and 40% of them had violence in their uh, since the abuse. They're now in their 40s and 50s. So over the ensuing uh, 20 to 30 years, Violent acts were very common. The other common uh, outcomes are post-traumatic stress disorder, which many of us are familiar with now, but it's like combat stress and a feeling that it's happening over and over again and uh, you can't get away from it. Uh, it interferes every day with your life. So it's uh, alcohol and drug use, very common. It's self-medication, trying to reduce mm -hmm. the symptoms, trying to avoid the reminders, um, but they often get into trouble with uh, criminal behavior Let's hear from Jerry Schwartzbach. Jerry, based on what you just heard, what's your reaction with regard to uh, uh, the Vargas sentence and uh, particularly in light of what I brought up uh, regarding the Dan White sentence, if you think that has any relevance? Well, I, I, sh I should say initially that I, I'm generally hesitant to express opinions about cases that I haven't been involved in. I've, I've been involved in some high-profile cases, and I have seen and heard lawyers who weren't involved express opinions and they frankly didn't know what they were talking about and were doing a disservice to the profession and to the public. Having said that, I have tried to educate myself a bit about uh, Aaron's case and um, I'm troubled by the sentence. Uh, uh, I appreciate uh, that the judge um, uh, looked at the crime itself, but I think that uh, it appears to me from the outside that um, that this was clearly an excessive sentence. Um, the, my understanding is the judge talked about the message in the probation department report, talked about the message that would be sent out uh, by uh, granting probation somehow would be a, 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 an a message that, that killing somebody uh, who has... Uh, who has molested you or in some way victimized you would be justified. I, I think the judge had at his resources many tools by which to uh, impose a, a probation with a state prison sentence uh, hanging over Aaron's head with very stringent uh, conditions. It's my understanding from the pre-sentence report that psychologists uh, believe that uh, that Aaron was fully capable of uh, complying with the terms of probation. Uh, and it, it is not, it's one thing to say, well, you have to let the system work. Uh, and by that, I take it was meant that, uh, you know, victims can't go out and uh, 
and seek their own retribution. You have to allow the legal system to work, and I think that that's, that's obviously correct. And we're not talking about Aaron simply walking away from this situation. Um, but to me, it is completely unrealistic as a human being and as a lawyer to simply uh, say, to, to judge a person who has been a victim of child molestation for many years, who appears to have su suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, who's had a substance abuse problem likely resulting uh, from the abuse, and who was intoxicated at the time, to indicate, to, to somehow judge that person by someone who premeditatedly goes out and tries to seek retribution against an abuser. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, that just doesn't make sense to me. I was also very troubled by the suggestion, actually statement in the, in the uh, probation department's pre-sentence report, that somehow at, at some point in time this molestation was no longer a molestation but was a consensual sexual act by, by Aaron. Uh, uh, it is beyond me how the probation officer, I don't know the probation officer, I don't know what his educational uh, background is, but my understanding, based upon what I've heard and read, is that's just that that's simply not not accurate. And so, what the judge, the result of this is that the judge has sent uh, a person with mental health issues to an overcrowded state prison system that is under a federal receivership because it has been found to provide constitutionally inadequate care to inmates with mental health issues. That, that cannot be a reasonable resolution of this case. Dr. David Wolf, can a person who has been molested over a period of years then switch and participate in sexual activity with the molester consensually? I've never heard of it happening. Uh, it's hard to imagine because anything that you enter into without consent, uh, the dynamics do shift. There's a dependency that's created in most of these cases where the person in their own mind feels that they can't escape it or they're dependent on the person. Uh, they may even be getting some kind of benefit from it that, that uh, at the time they think justifies it. There's all sorts of rationale, just like with battered women in the home. They think they can't do anything about it, um, whereas outsiders think they should have left. It, until you've experienced that, you don't know how difficult it would be. So, no, I would say um, any you cannot give consent, uh, you cannot consider a consent if it was obtained when you were a minor. And the dynamics will shift, but uh, over time, but that I would I'd be hard pressed to say that it would ever be consensual. Beth Norman, do you have reason to believe that the uh, the sexual activity between Vargas and McNeil when they were when Vargas was an adult became uh, consensual? It, it, consensual is a difficult word, and I and I absolutely respect what Dr. Wolf is saying about uh, it's a conditioned situation, conditioned response, and and had Aaron not been molested as a child. Um, you know, as an 18-year-old man or a 20-year-old man, I doubt that he would have engaged in sexual conduct with uh, Daryl. Uh, some of the other, Todd Rowan described the fact that he continued having sexual relations with Daryl McNeil when he was up to age 24. Um, so somehow 
these men continued these situations of sexual and and when daryl i mean when aaron talked about it with his fiance he 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 told her about it he told her he had been having these uh, basically having daryl or orally copulate him and and he didn't believe that as cheating in his marriage he 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 just said that was just something that they did occasionally um so i you know, I, I definitely know that when when people are sexualized as children, they can become sexualized as adults. You see it in women; they become sometimes they become uh, some. You know, when when they've interviewed prostitutes, many of them were molested as children. That doesn't mean that if you're molested, you become a prostitute, but the other way does happen. Um, but there are certainly a lot of men who are molested that that don't have this situation. So, I I, I have a hard time with the concept of consensual from where the probation officer saw it was that I think, you know, was there some kind of blackmail? Was there some kind of intimidation? No, it was, it was basically a, a learned response or a situation that they had developed into. But our understanding also in investigating the case was that that had stopped years ago, that that relationship had stopped years ago and that they had a social relationship at this point in time. They, Aaron was helping Daryl deliver furniture from a bankrupt business at right before this killing. So those kinds of things were, you know, they, they had some relationship at that point in time, but I don't believe it was sexual at that time. Let's hear from uh, Excuse Dr. Excuse me for interrupting, but I just wanted to read something from the probation report. Who is this, Jerry? Um, yes. Thank you. Excuse me. Um, uh, the probation officer wrote, uh, quote, although the molestation as a child may have contributed to Mr. Vargas's criminal delinquency as an adult, it was his choice to have a consensual sexual relationship with the victim, close quote. I just find that shocking. And this is a probation officer, despite the fact that there had been an agreement that I believe the ma uh, that the maximum sentence uh, to be imposed pursuant to the negotiated disposition was, I think, 11 years or uh, 10, 10 years. years. 10, 10 years. years, excuse me. The probation officer recommended 21 years in state prison. That suggests to me, again, I'm, I'm looking at it from the outside, but suggests to me that that uh, there should have been somebody else preparing this, this probation report. Right, and I think some of that language might have been taken from, uh, you, if you have the probation report, you'll see the widow wrote, wrote a thing where she talked about the fact that Daryl had been molested when he was a child. That was not his choice, but he came, became a molester, and that was his choice. She went on to write, Aaron was molested as a child. Again, that was not his choice. Killing Daryl was his choice. So, and, and that was a letter probation had read. So I, I don't know if that was something that was resonating when he wrote it. Um, I, but I, That has absolutely nothing to do with calling it consensual, which also Detective Van Patten also said it was consensual. Yeah, but and this is Jerry again. Beth, Beth with respect, I mean, I, I appreciate what um, what Daryl's uh, wife may have written, but an experienced probation officer, as you and I know well, um, has to exercise his or her own independent judgment based upon his or her own education and experience. And and uh, there was nothing about the language that the probation officer used that um, that that suggested that his that his judgment was was based upon re, uh, statements by uh, the the victim's uh, widow and I, I don't know again I don't know the judge I don't know the probation officer but it, and, and I don't know the local politics but uh, it would by, be naive not to uh, 
appreciate the fact that judges can be sensitive to political realities. This was a high-profile case. That probation recommendation of 21 years, it seemed to me, likely uh, put some pressure on the judge. Let me ask. Uh, both, I don't know whether it, it did, in fact, or not. Let me ask both uh, both Beth Norman and Jerry Schwartzbach. How unusual is it for a probation report to recommend? way beyond what the parties had already stipulated to. I'm reading here from the probation report. It says the parties, that means the prosecution and defense, stipulated to a maximum 10-year uh, resolution. And how unusual is it for the probation department to then recommend more than twice as much what had already been agreed upon? In your experience, please. Mr. Schwartzbach has been doing this probably twice as long as I have, so I'll let you lead on this one. Oh, as if I don't feel old enough already. Um, I, I can't recall it ever. I can't recall it in my experience, although I may have been practicing uh, uh, longer than, than Beth. And in her position, she, she sees many more cases than, than I do. But um, uh, I, I can't off the top of my head recall any case I've ever been involved in where a probation officer has done that. I, I've had it happen to me, and I would say it, it is very rare, probably 10%, 5% of the cases. And a lot of times um, what will happen is the defense attorney and I have been working, like in this case, Mr. Hudson and I have been working on the case for a year, and we both knew it backwards, forwards, sideways. And so we had come to this agreement, um, and, and, yeah, I mean, I've, I've received questions, I won't say criticism, but questions from other DAs saying, you know, this is first degree, this is first degree, what are you doing? But we, we felt that this was a fair resolution and that I felt it, it achieved what, what we needed to achieve, plus it gave uh, Mr. Vargas and his attorney a chance to argue for probation. But, but sometimes the probation department will look at a situation and say, you know, you were too soft here or you were out of line here. And so they'll write their report based on what they read and the materials they gathered, and that's what happened here is probation reviewed the materials submitted and felt like we were off the mark. And I, I don't think we were. And it was nice that that's one of the first things Judge Brown said when he began to sentence, because he could have undone the plea if he thought it was totally offline. And the first thing he said was he felt this was a fair resolution, and then he went on from there. I'm going to read uh, from the probation report uh, from Dr. Kelly, uh, who was a psychologist who uh, examined... Uh, Aaron Vargas and tested him. Uh, Dr. Kelly feels Mr. Vargas's symptoms are treatable through personal counseling and through support groups within the community. If Mr. Vargas were granted probation, Dr. Kelly feels Mr. Vargas has the resources to meet the standard terms to successfully complete a period of probation. Dr. Kelly also noted that Mr. Vargas would not be a risk to the community. Um, let's hear from what uh, Dr. Donald Apostle, who also um, examined um, Vargas. Mike, would you play that, uh, that, uh, that Dr. Apostle uh, clip for us? There's a total misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of what actually goes on, how they are literally, uh, you know, uh, dominated and become quite passive and don't use good sense and things of that sort. 
this this was never an adult homosexual relationship that was consensual. This was just a bizarre continuation of a pattern that had gone on since the age of 11 and a half. Dr. Dr. Wolf, does that make sense to you as a as a uh, as a psychologist what the Dr. Apostle is saying? Yes, it does. I don't know this case in and out as he would, but uh, absolutely it it is a continual pattern that's part of what an abusive relationship is is to create that dependency and that pattern. So it's very difficult for a person to make a rational uh, decision about how to end the relationship or 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 how to describe it to others. Uh, so it's all distorted. There is, right from the beginning, but for that abuse, um, the person uh, would be a different person. So uh, right. it affects everything. So so what are we to make of this? We hear Kelly, Dr. Kelly saying that uh, Vargas would not be a risk, that he would meet the standards for probation, uh, that he is treatable. We hear uh, what uh, Dr. Apostle just said about the mol- about the molestation. We've heard about uh, from Dr. David Wolf about the effects of this, and yet this probation report seems to be taking a very strong position, uh, almost diametrically opposed to what these professionals are saying. How relevant in the judge's decision-making process? Is this probation report, Beth? I think it was very well. The probation report is is information that's provided to the judge. The, basically, the probation department is an an, an information gathering source for the judge. But along with this probation report and the report provided by Dr. Kelly, there was a lot of testimony. I mean, there were two days of testimony several hours worth of testimony. Dr. Kelly, who is very well known by the judge, testifies here in Mendocino County a lot. Uh, He testified for, I think it was an hour and a half, actual testimony separate from this report and and answered questions. And I believe he answered questions submitted by the judge. And Dr. Apostle did too. I mean, the the point was at the end, when it was all said and done, the the judge said he had heard all of this, he had considered all this, he, he did, I don't even think he doubted the PTSD issue. His point was that he still felt that the defendant knew what he was doing at the time, and, and the statements he made after shooting Daryl McNeil, that he was glad he shot him, glad he gut shot him, glad he suffered, he kicked him while he was dying. These things, he felt, made the crime a, a serious crime, and that it could not go unrecognized and, and unpunished for the crime that it was. So it was, I, I it was clear that the judge had made a decision before he even listened to all the testimony at the two-day hearing because he took a 10-minute recess, and he came back and read several pages that he had prepared for his reasoning for handing down the sentence that he did. And I really doubt that he could have prepared all of that in 10 minutes. So it seemed clear to all of us in the courtroom that he had already made his decision. What, what are you saying there, uh, Mindy, that uh, the, are you suggesting that the judge disregarded the testimony of these professionals, that he was uh, biased in some way, or, or, or what, that he was uneducated as to the effects of the uh, severe uh, psychological abuse? I think all of the above. I mean, his ruling shows that, that that's obviously, you know, he did disregard what the doctor said. Um, I didn't see any indication that, you know, that he took that into account in his ruling. And 
you know, like I said, right after, you know, the end of all of the testimony, he took a 10-minute recess, he came back, he read several pages, and handed down the sentence. And I don't think he could have prepared, you know, all of those pages in those 10 minutes. Well, again, we remember it differently. I think it was more along the lines of 20 minutes than I... No, it was a 10-minute, it was a 10-minute recess. Beth, uh, you're going to have to leave soon, so I want to get one more opinion from you, please. How relevant, in your opinion, for the decision-making process by the judge was Vargas's state of mind when he killed McNeil? Oh, it, it affected the case, and I can't just say the sentencing, but the case. I mean, it was something we looked at when we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to proceed with first-degree murder, because that's, you know, an intention and a second-degree murder, and when we came off of those... We, we had to show, I mean, normally you do a manslaughter plea when somebody gets in a bar fight. Normally you do a manslaughter plea when somebody gets beat up and immediately in the heat of, of anger responds and kills somebody. That's what manslaughter is. And it was all of these reports and all of these factors and the PTSD that, that caused us in this situation, there was no immediate fight. There was no immediate argument that night. There was no... Situation. Yeah, because according to the DA's office, the abuse was a past life tissue. Um, they didn't they didn't see it as abuse that was still continuing because to the probation department and the DA's department and the sheriff's department, it was just an adult consensual Actually, relationship. We did, and, and that's why we quarrel. that's why we came off the first degree murder, and that's why we came off the second degree murder is because we did consider it an ongoing situation in his mind. We did. And that's why we came off those and went to the manslaughter charge. And when you say an, an ongoing situation is mine, what you're saying is that you took into consideration that even if they weren't having sexual relations at the present time or, or even around that time, you, the, you took into consideration the many years that this material had gotten embedded in Aaron's mind and by, and you, by taking that into consideration, you were willing to drop the charge from first and second degree right. murder. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and it, 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 it doesn't, just because the sex stopped doesn't mean that the trauma stops, and that's what the doctors did testify to. It's a lifelong condition that affects you. Uh, Dr. Uh, David Wolf, tell our listening audience, please, what is PTSD, post, please tell us, post-traumatic stress disorder? It's a disorder that um, originally came out of uh, war combat, and over the last 20 years it's become part of our diagnostic manual. It consists of uh, life-threatening trauma, uh, typically, and most of us now in the field also interpret that as something um, where you may have felt unable to escape at the time, which would be such as abuse. And then it's followed by uh, signs of anxiety, like fear that, the per that this is going to happen over and over again or that you're that you are experiencing it over and over again. Physiological changes, such as sweating and, and uh, uh, high blood pressure and heart rate and so forth, uh, when, when you think about what happened to you. And then usually some kind of avoidance behavior, trying to get away from it, trying to avoid thinking about it, which can result in drinking or many different tactics people might use. One of them, though, being confronting uh, the situation. So would you, you would agree then with, uh, with District Attorney uh, Beth Norman's statement that, that, the, that the trauma from the past was influencing the present state of mind? Uh, I would agree with that. It's, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't. Um, someone who's gone through abuse, assuming that that's what's happened here, 
Um, and most people think of abuse as, as a horrific event, something that's frightening and scary, but in sexual abuse, that's not usually the case. The offender's job is to make sure it's not frightening or scary because then, then someone will detect it. So the person has been groomed into it gradually, and it's many years later that some will recognize it, that they were traumatized, that this actually was a manipulation. Uh, they don't realize it sometimes for quite some time and realize that it's how much it's affected them. Jerry, you heard uh, Beth's position regarding why they dropped this from first and second degree murder to voluntary manslaughter. And yet you stated earlier that you believe that the sentence was too, was too strong. Please give us some more information on your thinking. Well, I don't uh, question uh, that uh, the district attorney's office uh, considered the, the factors Beth uh, outlined in, in deciding to uh, enter into this plea bargain. But I suspect, uh, I don't know, but I suspect that there are other factors as well. Um, and, and some of those factors are, you know, I, I've looked at some of the media reports and oftentimes, uh, perhaps uh, the overwhelming majority of times, media reports are not accurate. But there's some people have described as, or raised the question, was Aaron a, a hero or a vigilante? In my view, based upon my limited knowledge, he was neither. He was he was a he was a victim. Um, of, he certainly perpetrated a crime, and the and the crime can't can't be ignored. And shouldn't be ignored, but those same fact, but but other factors that might go into uh, reducing a charge to enter into a disposition are the fact of the matter is this was a case in which people had very strong views. Then they had a very difficult time getting twelve people to convict Aaron of anything, even voluntary manslaughter, because jurors, uh, although we like to think that jurors come into a, a courtroom. Uh, and leave their biases uh, outside, that's just not reality. And this was a case in which jurors were going to have very strong views. And there was a real risk that this attorney's office might not get a conviction of anything. Uh, and I suspect that was a factor. There are certainly financial uh, realities these days, for sure, given our economic crisis. Um, it would have been very expensive to try this case. Um, and and as I understand what Beth has said uh, publicly is that she thought that that this was th this was a disposition that a jury would agree with. Um, of course, it seems to me if that's a disposition a jury would agree with, then perhaps it was it, uh, perhaps it should have been the initial charge. But in any case, I'm not suggesting that the, that the, that there wasn't a a a crime. This wasn't a tragedy. Certainly, Daryl didn't deserve to be murdered. But that does not address the issue of sentencing. Those same factors that Beth uh, addressed that apparently affected the DA's willingness to reduce the charge should have been considered as part of what's an appropriate disposition, what's an appropriate sentence. If we all were agreed he was a molest victim for many years, and if, as Beth says, the trauma continues into adulthood, um, and as the probation officer indicated uh, or, or, or acknowledged that, that 
Aaron's prior problems with the criminal law likely were the result of abuse, and if all the doctors agreed that he was amenable to probation, it just doesn't seem to me it makes any sense to send him to prison. It just doesn't make any sense. The fact that the charge got reduced from first degree to manslaughter, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that you therefore should uh, sentence him more severely um, because the original charge was first degree murder. It just, that just doesn't make sense. This is a human being who has suffered significant injury, emotional, psychological injury. And, and it seems to me that the judge, in his interest to send a message, um, simply lost sight of... I'm, I don't mean to go on, but let me tell you one of my problems with the criminal justice system, and one of the reasons hold why on, hold I Hold on, hold on. Let me just interrupt yeah. you, Jerry, before you go on with that, and I very much want sure. to hear what you have to say about the criminal justice system. But let's hear what Dr. John Apostle says about what his reaction to the Vargas sentence is. We were kind of hoping for probation. I know that's kind of Pollyannish, perhaps, but uh, we, we thought that he was ready for treatment. He was ready. Uh, we had come to grips with... Uh, you know, removing the trigger, unfortunately, in this tragic way in his life. He had certainly thought about his drinking. He had a good, healthy relationship, or that was becoming healthier with a significant other. He had a great deal of family and community support. You know, I would have liked even a couple of years, maybe, if the judge, you know, could have said that, even a couple of years. But to do this nine years now and to just put him into a uh, a prison where, you know, he's not going to get much better and uh, be exposed to all kinds of bad things in terms of, uh, it's kind of another, just adding more tragedy to this case. As, as, a, as a doctor of clinical psychology, what I'm well aware of is that by saying this, what, he, what, what uh, John Apostle, Dr. Apostle just said, uh, you know, about probation, he's really putting his own uh, reputation, you know, out on the line. And Kelly also put his own reputation out on the line. And, and Beth, you mentioned before that Kelly is is well known to uh, to the judicial system in Mendocino County. And what I mean by putting their reputations out on the line, and I know John, Dr. John Syrup did as well, uh, because I interviewed him in, in a prior uh, radio broadcast on this topic. If if um, if they make this kind of recommendation. And were he, uh, Aaron Vargas, to, uh, to get probation and then go out and do something bad, it comes back on their, on their uh, recommendation, on their professional recommendation. And so looking at it from that perspective, it almost adds weight to what they're saying here. Uh, and yet, most peculiarly, the probation department comes out with this recommendation. That's what I'm scratching my head about. They come out with this recommendation of double what the already stipulated uh, agreement was. That gets, gets my, my head scratching here. Beth, are you still with us? Uh, yes, sir. Do you have any more to add to that, or do you, Jerry? I mean, that's the head-scratcher here. How do these, all these professionals, some who are, you know, as you say, well-known, Beth, well-known to the judicial mm -hmm. system, so they're respected, and an apostle is also, and they have no, I wouldn't think they have any axe to grind. They're just brought in on this case. And, and they come up with these recommendations, and then I'm scratching my head again about... The, the probation department coming up with double what's been agreed upon. And, and what do you make of that? And, and how does that play into this case? 
is it relevant? I, well, you know, I hope they considered it. I, I, I'm sure they considered it. Um, I, I guess, you know, these are, especially this probation officer does criminal law generally. Uh, he does a lot of the more serious matters. They do homicide cases. We have a lot of homicide cases, and I know, you know I'm speaking in generalities here with homicide cases. For a 10-year agreement on a homicide case where a gun is used, and, and again, a gun being brought into a crime raises it to a whole other level, and you're hearing about that down in Southern California with uh, the Meserly case. And When the gun comes in, that's a whole other thing. So for us to be talking in the 10-year range and something like that, I just think that initially they were troubled by that um reports aside i mean you you you're certainly raising a lot of good issues and you have experts here who are talking about a lot of really important issues and these things may evolve in the criminal law system but but generally for a homicide with a gun i think probation felt like we were coming in low yeah well we've heard from both of you that it's very unusual i mean perhaps it's enough we, we've said enough on the topic that it's unusual for the probation department to come in with a report and recommend something beyond which has already been agreed to jerry i cut you off before when you wanted to uh to make some points about the uh, the judicial system itself and i'd like to come back to that because we have a lot to learn from you well um you know, I have been practicing law for over 40 years, and although uh, many people think that uh, criminal defense lawyers drink blood for breakfast, uh, uh, I think the overwhelming majority of us who, who do criminal defense work actually really care about people and care about um, crime. We have our own families. Um, and I've really tried to be objective about this. I think this country, in general, has failed in its fight against crime because we have this temptation to simplify things. We, we have this temptation um, to play upon, I think politicians do this. People are understandably fearful about crime. Um, there are many people uh, are ill-informed about the sources of crime. And there are people out there with a variety of prejudices. And I think it's unfortunate that uh, there are oftentimes politicians will play on people's ignorance and their fears and their biases when they're running for elective office. Um, and everybody wants to get, let's get hard on crime. And so we build more and more prisons. We hire more and more correctional officers. And I, I may be mistaken, but I believe the largest union in the, in the state of California is the Correctional Officers Union. And to me, it's it, it's sad, sad that it's not, you know, it's not the Teachers Association. Because to understand where crime comes from is to under, and in, in Aaron's case, is, is an example. It, you know, very few, if anybody, is born a criminal. Um, Criminal behavior often results, in my experience, as a result of uh, things such as lack of education, poor health care, poor education, substance abuse, molestation, a, a variety of social factors, mental illness. And, and we as a society are, are, are failing to put in adequate resources into the things that really could fight crime. Rather, we, we, we have 
criminalized more and more conduct. We've made sentences more and more severe. And we spend an enormous amount of money um, on the prison system and incarcerating people. And, and we spend an enormous amount of money attempting to execute human beings. And I suspect that, that well over a majority of the people on death row are people who themselves have been victimized as children who fell through the cracks. And in Aaron's case, it seems to me, and, and I've, I've seen this in, in other situations, where, particularly in, in, a, in a, a case where the prosecution is seeking death, you know, if, if in fact, a child is victimized, um, and the perpetrator is, and this is discovered. Law enforcement will take a very hard line on the perpetrator, and 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 the person will be prosecuted very vigorously. Yet, for those young children who slip through the cracks, and their victimization has never been discovered, um, and and then they they develop antisocial behavior, and as adults they find themselves as defendants in the criminal justice system. Oftentimes, the criminal justice system doesn't want to know about what happened to them as, child, as children. We just judge them as adults, as if they were born the, the adult who, crim, who, who, who committed uh, some type of antisocial or criminal conduct. And in Aaron's situation, to me, the probation department and the sentence suggest to me that um, the sentence is an ill-informed, simplistic um, and perhaps uh, emotional reaction because to just focus on the crime um, which I hear is what the judge did to just focus on the crime and to try to send a message is to leave out the overwhelming majority of what I think well maybe not the majority but a significant percentage of what a judge ought to be considering when deciding what's an appropriate sentence. Beth, you want to respond to that? Uh, a lot of what he says I, I don't necessarily quarrel with. It's I, One of the things that's been interesting to me is, is I've, I've handled, you know, a child molest cases as a prosecutor quite a bit, and I've been approached by a lot of people who have been victimized, uh, are victims or survivors of molest, both men and women, since handling this case. Um, and, and I guess, you know, the, the truth is there are a lot of people out there who have had traumatic events in their lives. And, and I think that's where the judge was coming from. And I'm getting away from trying to defend the probation report here and just talking about the sentence where, where the judge said, you know, at some point in time the criminal justice system has to say, this is not the answer. Violence is not the answer. Killing somebody is not the answer. But and what is the answer when the when the system fails to protect you, though? That's what I would like to know. And and by the way, I haven't heard anyone from the DA's office or the judge or probation or sheriff's department acknowledge that the system did fail in this case. The, well, they were supposed to go to the police department the next day. I mean, the system didn't get a chance to address if, their if Darrell McNeil was reported several times, and it's become clear throughout Aaron's case that if Aaron would have right. gone to the police that the next first, day, they the would first... have said it's consensual. It was consensual. You're an no. adult. No. I'm sorry that you were molested when you were a child, but the statute of limitations are up. The statute of limitations issue has been changed. When the Daryl McNeil was first reported, the statute of limitations did apply to molest cases, and 
when Virginia when you say he, he excuse went, me Beth you, when you're saying he was first reported you're saying he was reported for molestation at some point is that correct I have no reason to disbelieve the people who tell me this but let me, let me start by saying there's a woman who said that she went in the early 90s and at that point in time the statute of limitations hadn't been changed or I believe it was the 80s Todd Rowan testified, and I, and I know this to be true because I've seen the police reports, that he went to law enforcement and he reported his molest. And at that time, again, they couldn't prosecute because of the statute of limitations. However, law enforcement asked him to help them yeah, find they asked possible him a victim. current victims. They asked a suicidal abuse victim to, do, to go undercover and try and help him find younger victims. How ignorant is that? to ask an abuse victim who is suicidal to go get near his abuser to try and help them prosecute. They Isn't were trying to find job? other victims. And I they're going to ask that... a suicidal victim to, to get near his abuser to try and help them find another victim? That is so ignorant and dangerous. At that point in time, they were trying to find victims they could prosecute. And they should, and they and they should have done that themselves and not had Todd Rowan go out and do their work for them when he's coming How, how do you do that, Mindy? Do you go out and knock door to door and say, hi, do you have any kids? Well, I mean, you, could they, start, you could start by knocking on Daryl McNeil's door with a warrant and searching his computer, which I guarantee you can't get a warrant unless you have not. evidence to show a, that a something's going on. Says, a police report that says I was molested by him isn't enough evidence to go and take someone's computer. Not it for isn't a enough evi- crime. It isn't enough evidence to go and question um, teenage boys who are working for him at his store. I'm sorry, but that's at that just, point in time that, they that said was, that, that was the system failed. Let me ask both Beth Norman and Jerry Schwartzbach the following question: Had Daryl McNeil been arrested for molestation, would that have affected, in your opinion? the case against Aaron Vargas for later killing him? Well, Judge Brown, and I'm sorry, I'll jump in here. Judge Brown talked about the fact that Judge Brown has sentenced people to prison for child molest, and he talked about the the social ramifications of that, the humility, the public humiliation of that, and how important it is that people allow the system to do that. And, yes, you know, in California you can't execute a, a molester, but you can do these things that cause them, you know, lifetime registration, that cause them to be regulated and monitored. But that aside, in this particular situation, there were enough other victims coming forward, because in California you need corroboration to, in order to prosecute. And so in this case, there were so many other people coming forward that I believe there would have been corroboration for Aaron's report. They had already come forward and there was still nothing done. Richard, let me just say... Yes, Jerry, please. I'm finding it it appears to me that Beth and I um, actually agree on a number of things. Uh, Yes. One thing that I'm not sure that we do agree on um, is it it, it doesn't seem to me, because my impression is that what Beth is saying, the judge was saying, and and the district attorney's office agreed with, was that a prison sentence was necessary in order to... um, in order to punish someone for this for this serious crime. And what I'm saying is I don't think prison was the appropriate sentence and that you could send a very strong message uh, and, and and impose a much more humane sentence by establish by by placing Aaron on a very strict supervised probation because the result of this as I said he's go- he's going to a prison system where he's not going to get any care, he's likely going to get worse, he is going to come out, and when he comes out, he's likely going to be more ill, 
he he may be a danger to society at that point when he's not a danger now and and we will have spent untold amounts of money to incarcerate him and feed him and care for him um it just it the placing somebody on probation is not condoning what they did that's my essential point the sentence to me is was illogical based upon the information i have i'm not suggesting the killing was appropriate to the contrary i recognize the killing should not have occurred but that's just one factor in in trying to decide what's an appropriate disposition given all of these factors that we've talked about today dr david wolf are people who have suffered severe sexual and psychological molestation treatable Oh, yes, they are treatable. Uh, they'll never uh, fully recover, um, typically. I mean, they'll be functional and, and can lead to productive lives. Uh, the treatment, however, the longer you wait, the more difficult it is. And uh, uh, as I say, it's it's a matter of what are you trying to treat. It's You can't erase the memories and so forth. You are trying to help them cope in a more effective manner with something that they had no control over at the time. Uh, and in so doing, it's very stressful because they often have to relive the experience with the safety of a therapist in order to uh, recognize that they are not to blame and, they, and to reduce the shame and guilt that they often feel. From a psychological perspective, Dr. Wolf, does this Aaron Vargas case have implications for returning veterans coming back with PTSD from Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, not direct implications in that we've known about the uh, the returning veterans for many years. The same issue has arisen where people come back and shoot other people um, uh, for, uh, often for no reason or some minor provocation, uh, and it's attributed to post-traumatic stress, uh, probably rightfully so. Um, it's a different situation in that case because uh, they went willingly to war, They made, but the treatment of it, uh, now that we know the, what that it's effective to treat that when they return. The travesty there is that many of them weren't being reached and treated, uh, and they they try to get attention, uh, they try to get help, and it often leads to tragic results if they don't get the proper help. Richard, just one quick thing, if I could add. Certainly, please. Uh, so that people understand, if someone's placed on probation, such as if Aaron were placed on probation, and they violate the terms of the probation, they can be sent to prison. So the judge had the capacity to to impose the maximum possible prison sentence as a and been suspended and place Aaron on probation and if Aaron violated any of the terms of probation he could then could have sent him to prison Dr. Wolf in your experience does a person who kills someone the way Aaron Vargas did very specifically the person who molested him is society at risk that an Aaron Vargas will kill someone else not necessarily related. Are they are they more likely to be uh, uh, homicide uh, per perpetrators? Um, no, they're very much not. This very specific situation. Uh, they're typically not a risk to others. They may be a risk to themselves. Um, so, no, I'd answer that very clearly. That's not the case. So, in other words, you would agree with with Jerry Schwartzbach that there was a possibility here for uh, Aaron Vargas 
to be given probation and treatment and at the same time not be a greater risk to society than, say, the rest of us, the average person on the street? You're asking me? I was asking you, Dr. Wolf. Oh, oh Dr. Wolf. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, yes, I mean, I, I wouldn't second-guess the facts in this case, but uh, and, there's, and, and there is a an important issue here in terms of deterrence of others because there are so many potential victims or known victims out there that that I'm sure the judge had to weigh that if, if uh, they're not punished or not punished what people would say is effectively uh, you could have a rampage on your hand of people get seeking revenge I don't know if that's the case here at all uh, but that's an interesting that's point you make doctor because that's one of the things I've heard well you know if you give this guy probation then every victim of every priest in the United States is liable to go around shooting priests and thinking they're going to get away with it so that's that's to suggest or assume that 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 uh, such people have the same um, uh, mental health issues that Aaron had and to the extent that he had them and also had the substance abuse issues uh, that he had. And, and something else that I think ought to be considered is that when Aaron uh, goes to prison, not only is he being punished, so is his wife, so is his young child. And what's the effect going to be on that child growing up for an extended period of time without a father around? There's a much. It seems to me the picture is a much broader one than the judge appears to have looked at. We have a few seconds left. Do any of you, uh, Beth Norman, uh, David Wolf, Jerry Schwartzbach, Mindy Galliani, uh, have any last minute, uh, last second thing to say before we end? Um, sure. I've just said repeatedly at my press conferences. I want to encourage uh, victims of molest to come forward and talk to law enforcement and try to use the system as it is in place now um, and seek that realm rather than violence. And that's, that's the message I'd like to say. Thank you. And I, I would add to that, that that we have to make sure that they have the right calling cards to get into those doors because often um, until things get worse, they, uh, they're turned away. Thank and we're, we therefore need the social services that uh, we're, that are being cut back repeatedly uh, in favor of, of uh, building more prisons. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Norman from the District Attorney's Office, Dr. David Wolf, psychologist, Dr. Uh, Jerry Schwartzbach, I almost gave you a doctorate, Jerry, uh, and, uh, and Millie, Mindy Galliani for being with us today on this very important program about mental state, about the judicial system, about the relationship between mental illness and, and, and cognitive functioning. I thank you all very much. And thank you all for listening thank to you. today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics which is contributed to by our staff, our producer Ron Rogers, and our engineer Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.